From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Opening this Friday here at the Film Society is Eliza Hitman's Beach Rats, about a closeted Brooklyn teenager struggling to reconcile his conflicting sexual urges. Featuring sensuous 16mm photography by French DP Alain Louvard, the film presents a colorful and textured world roiling with sexual appetites and youthful self-discovery. Beach Rats was the centerpiece selection of the new director's new films festival earlier this year. And after the screening, the director joined us for a Q&A, along with cast members Harris Dickinson, Madeline Weinstein, David Ivanoff, and Frank Hakash. The film officially opens here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center this Friday, August 25th. Let's go now to our conversation from New Directors New Films, which was moderated by programmer Florence Almazzini. I'm just going to ask maybe a few questions to you and everyone on stage, and then we can open it up. Um, since we have the entire, I mean, a big part of the cast, maybe we can start by um, talking about how you met Harris, and then Maddie and the Beach Rats, <laughs> um, mm. just so we can participate in the conversation from the beginning. Yeah, um, I guess that the casting process was a, a hybrid, I would say, of um, you know a traditional indie casting process as well as a non-traditional casting process. Um, Harris came in um, through in LA. He was he was in the first session of casting tapes that we received for the film. And he came in through an LA management office and I was sort of like, oh, I don't really know if I want to cast somebody from LA. Because um, this is such a, you know, a New York film. Um, and then, uh, you know, in his video, it was, he was very, very compelling. You know, and he, the first thing that he said in the video was, um, hey, my name is Harris, you know, Dickinson. I'm, I'm six foot three. You know, and he had a very, um, a very kind of compelling um, audition. And then I found out he was British and he had snuck in through his management company. Um, and I had an even more, a bigger crisis, I would say, because I didn't I'm know. I'm British from LA, but stop. Yes, I didn't know I could cast somebody from out the outskirts of London for this film. Um, and I, can, I guess I can talk about all of them, and then they can talk about how they found the project. Um, Maddie over here is a very talented actress, um, and she was also part of our first kind of casting sessions. Um, and I looked her up immediately and did some research and found out that she was in a Broadway production of The Real Thing um, right out of Northwestern and from New York. Um, and was really sort of captivated by her audition, which was, you know, very seductive, but sort of natural, I would say, um, and very talented. Um, and Frank and Dave, do you want to talk about sort of how you came to the, to the production? I was hanging out on a beach one day, <laughs> smoking and drinking with my friends, and then two weird people came up to me asking if I wanted to be in a movie. I was like, cool, no doubt. <laughs> Uh, 
Yeah, I sort of don't remember, so <laughs> I would say the process was very um, subtle, so yeah. Um, so we had had, you know, a, a non-traditional sort of part of this process um, where, you know, I, you know, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, you know, and I went to like a massive public high school called Edward R. Murrow that's sort of smack in the middle, you know, and I grew up in Flatbush, you know, in the 80s and the 90s um, and, you know, overlapped and intersected with kids, you know, from mostly what we call now South Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of kind of line, I guess, the cutoff would have been Park Slope. So the majority of the people that I knew were from Canarsie and Manhattan Beach and all these other places. So I had sort of pre-scouted locations where I wanted um, people who were helping cast the film. And I'd say, go to this, you know, handball court around this time. And it was, you know, early, you know, summer, June, I would say. And, you know, I had very specific kind of character descriptions that mm, had a, a few students who were helping on the production who helped kind of take videos and you know, they were sort of of the same age as the kids and were able to talk to them and invite them to audition. I mean, Brooklyn is nearly like uh, part of the cast. I mean, you've worked in Brooklyn, you just mentioned it, but it's really typically a part of Brooklyn you don't really see in films, so it was great to bring people from also different side of Brooklyn. I mean, Coney Island a little bit, but I think it's shot mostly like maybe Ships of Bay and Guys It's shot beach. all over. Um, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, um, a beach rat is somebody who specifically is from Garretson Beach. Um, and so, so you are from Garretson no, Beach? No, uh, Frank from is... Manhattan beach. You're from Manhattan Beach. We're all neighbors of the neighborhood, yeah. Um, a beach rat is somebody who's specifically from Garretson Beach, um, and it's an area that has like one access road, and it was actually really devastated um, in Sandy because there was only one access road. And I initially wanted to shoot there, but it's not such a warm environment, actually, so we sort of shot all over, I would say. Um, and a kid from Garrison Beach has a certain texture, um, and they all kind of share similar characteristics. Like a lot of them come from broken homes, have lost parents, and have sort of headed down a specific track. And it's a pattern, I would say. Um, and there's a lot of meth, which was in earlier versions of the script, but was sort of taken out. But there's a lot of sort of hard kind of drugs, and they're kind of far from the train, so there isn't so much motivation, I would say. And there's this, a stagnancy, you know, and an isolation, I think, that comes when you sort of live in, you know, an area that's a bit removed from the subway. Um, but it is, it is sort of a, a local slang term for a certain kind of kid, but also what I was thinking about was that there is still a lot of cruising that happens along the water, and I was just thinking about the title in terms of relationship to like what happens during the night and what happens during the day. Uh, you, you talked about finding everyone. I would like to hear from you about your experience working in the film and when you met with Eliza. Yeah. Um, as Eliza said, I, I sent my tape through, um, was it beginning of summer? And I, I, I spend a lot of time sitting in my room in my mum's house, putting myself on tape for projects, and they kind of go into like this abyss that you don't really know where they're going, and you have no concept of who's watching them or if they're even getting watched. And 
<clears throat> the annoying thing with when I read the script is that I loved it so much and you have that lack of control with projects. You know, you, you, you're not in, uh, in charge of your own destiny a lot of times and the parts that you get. So I kind of, I loved it so much and I was really passionate about it, but I didn't, I knew that it was kind of out of my hands. So um, I just tried my best and it was really refreshing to know, to read a character that was so well-rounded and had a really interesting struggle going on and something that I could, uh, a challenge that I could rise to, you know, in terms of um, the cultural difference of who he is and, and uh, I mean, I'm from London and to, to step into a movie that is about a very specific part of, a part of Brooklyn was kind of intimidating in a sense, but it didn't feel so far away from my, um, my area and my friends that I know and friends of friends. So it was kind of just a matter of trying to transfer them differences into like a Brooklyn equivalent almost. Um, but yeah, I put myself on tape and then me and Eliza had a really great Skype session. I was teaching some kids at the, at the time at a local drama school. And I remember like my manager called me and was like, you've got the Skype session in like 10 minutes. So I had to like leave the kids for a bit. They were supervised, it was fine. Um, but I had to like go upstairs and I remember I was just like really excited by it and I wasn't, I wasn't nervous. I was just really um, looking forward to, to, to getting, talking to you. Um, you know, in the time that had lapsed between the audition and the, and the, the Skype call I'd watched, it felt like love and I got a sense for the, the tone of the movie and your, your, your style. Um, so yeah, I kind of just, really hoped it would go further and it did. I ended up shooting it and getting a visa and it all worked out beautifully and very grateful, yeah. Yeah, you got your visa just on time, right? I, I did. Right <laughs> uh, and uh, Maddie, would you also like to um, talk about your experience on working on the film and with Eliza? Yeah, um, I had a kind of, I guess, similar experience to Harris in that I read the script and immediately loved it. Um, I could just see it immediately, and I guess that's a sign for me that I have connected to something. Um, but I, when I read it, the character didn't feel like an, an, an immediate fit. Um, and also, I think Eliza's work is so sparse, which is what I love about it, but coming from theater, which is a much, um, I don't know, more like verbal medium. Um, it was a very different kind of project, but I just fell in love with it, and the idea that it's a female director and DP was really exciting. Um, and so many of these movies, I think, when it's a male protagonist with a, a girlfriend, um, it's like so clearly the girl. And even though this is so sparse, somehow reading it, I, I understood her and I felt her, and I thought she had somehow a lot more agency than a lot of scripts would allow this person, which excited me, I guess. Uh, it's very well written, but I assume it's very specific in the dialogue. Do you allow for improvisation or changes with the actor, or do you, are you very strict? Um, I mean, I think that there, you know, that there are scenes that are sort of structured, you know, and written, you know, like you were taught to write a scene, and then there are scenes that are just, you know, there to sort of let the narrative breathe. Um, and those are scenes where I would just let people talk, you know, and 
um, we would just catch things that they were saying and um, but you know it's not it's not really an improvised you know process for me um, I would have liked to have been able to let it breathe even more but it was so tight you know this type the type of schedule that it was for the production um, so I think you know that there's always a fantasy when you find all these interesting people um, you know that have you know it really sort of not only like visually complex faces but also interesting personalities it's a it's a it's a balance because you want to be able to bring them out more than you've written but also the timing you know and the time of the the actual runtime of the script is always prohibitive. Um, there is, you know, one other um, character who's not here who wanted to be here today, Anton, who sort of fills out the group, and Anton particularly has, you know, a very interesting story, and um, you know, it's like hard to to sort of find ways to sort of integrate it in, I guess. But it wasn't it wasn't possible, you know, and I think that. The narrative is like doesn't have any point of view breaks, and it's mostly really about you know building the audience's relationship to the main character. Well, I think we, you can let them speak on the DVD extra, and they can just tell their stories <laughs> <laughs> if they want to speak more. <laughs> um, Maddie just mentioned it, uh, the cinematography. So you worked with Hélène Louvard, who's uh, worked uh, on, you know Wim Benders and I think Claire Denis. Yes, um, and I have a, a good friend here who's here tonight, Tim Sutton, and, and she shot his oh, beautiful yes. film called Dark Knight, yes. um, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And, and when I heard that she was shooting it, and I was also a big fan of Alicia Rohrwalker's films, um, that she had shot it, and he connected us. Um, and we began sort of Skyping about the project, and I had you know, some very specific um, sort of visual references for the film, you know, that she was interested in. Um, and some of those references were just appropriated Facebook images from kids from Garrison Beach, which is the opening montage of the film, was just an appropriated, you know, Facebook image that I had grabbed. Um, and then there was also a photographer named Danny Fitzgerald, who did a lot of kind of sort of erotic male photography um, from the 60s in Carroll Gardens, and he had a book called Brooklyn Boys. Um, and I sort of Brooklyn was interested. Brooklyn Boys with a Z? No, no, no with an Z. S, with an S. He had a, a studio in his apartment um, in Carroll Gardens and did a beautiful job of sort of capturing men in the neighborhood. And that was sort of also a reference. Um, and then there was a, a film that I saw here a while ago called um, White Epilepsy, which is a Philippe Grandria film. Grandria, I'm going to mispronounce it. Did I do that right? No, Grandria. Grandria. Um, I'm usually the one mispronouncing names, so I know. <laughs> that, you know, it was, um, it was lit entirely in frontal light. Um, and there was something very, you know, sort of body horror-ish about that installation or you know video piece um, that was intriguing to me and also um, um, some other photographs we we're looking at by Barbara Crane also all had this frontal light which is sort of not conventional for film photography 
Um, and we were, you know, really sort of thinking about, like, could we shoot this whole film with frontal light? And it was sort of came from the title in a way. It was like catching an animal if you had a flashlight in the darkness. You know, and while we were uh, preparing the film, everybody got nervous because we were only going to use one light in the darkness, you know, mounted on a stick. And um, Helen very beautifully kind of came to my defense. And she was like, look, everybody, you know, we could put a light here and it would be the moon, you know, and we could put a light here and it would be the street light. And she was like, but we will not do any of those things. And she said, why? Because it's cinema. So um, it was something, you know, that sort of stuck, you know, with me. And it's like, you know, the light comes from the same place as the soundtrack. I don't know. Um, you know, you can make those choices. And Helen and I spent some time at different cruising spots along the water and observing activity, I guess. And, you know, one thing that was sort of intriguing was that it was just in total darkness. So we were thinking about how we could sort of work with total darkness, and we decided to shoot on Super 16 because we wanted the film to have sort of a timeless feeling, which I think it's a story that has a timeless feeling and also an area that's sort of trapped in time. Um, and also, um, you know, like, you know, all these digital cameras are so phenomenal and how light sensitive they are. And we were like, we don't want the sensitivity to the light. Um, we wanted to sort of be able to shape the darkness. It's beautiful, it. shaping the darkness. Yes. <laughs> uh, we have time for one or two questions, so. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, sorry, yes. So this view loved the film, and she was asking you about the close-up, and if you knew, at what point you knew what you were gonna use. Um, well, I, I shot a, uh, I have one other feature that I made, it's a micro-budget film, um, and with that film, I only had time to use sort of one lens, and it was, it ended up being a, like a longer lens, and we shot very, very um, close, because we didn't have any money to kind of control the environment, and it's sort of stuck, I think, in the way that I approach thinking about shooting. And when I talked to Helen initially, I, was, I said, Helen, I need to open up the world in this film more. And I didn't end up really opening up the world very much, even though it was part of my intention. It ended up being quite confined, which I guess, you know, says something about, you know, the worlds and the stories that I'm sort of exploring at this moment. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, sure. Everybody heard the question? Yes. Why, as a woman, would I dare tell a story about a man or a young person? Male body. Who's male. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think for me, you know, I grew up in a world that was very, 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 very homophobic. Um, and. You know, I, I wrote something a number of years ago that was more specific to my family, and I got in a lot of trouble um, for writing it, um, and nobody spoke to me, you know, for a year. Um, so I always knew that I would tell some sort of story about um, a world in which there was no coming out, 
you know, or there was no clear way that that would happen. Um, you know, and that was something that I always knew at some point I would, you know, make a film about. And yes, you know, as a woman, I did do some research. It did dawn on me um, to look at some websites that are available to the general population, you know, and I think that the internet, you know, you know, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, um, you know, it can be an erotic place when you're coming of age. Um, and that's, you know, for, for both sexes, I think. Um, you know, and I was, a lot of my work, you know, the, the film that I've already made and the film that I'm showing here tonight explores a very specific intersection between sex and violence. Um, you know, and I was going down sort of a, a rabbit hole of thinking about real crimes that happen in the world, you know, and, um, you know, how it's sort of like this pattern of violence that people don't particularly want to think about or address, you know, and I think that for me, you know, I was thinking about how destructive from my own experiences it is to grow up you know, in a world, you know, and how destructive it is to hide who you are within a family, within a society, you know, within a community. Um, and, you know, I think it's, you know, it's important for women to be able to tell stories that interest them in the same way that men tell stories that interest them. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You have a special water? I have a special water oh. from across we, we the We bring the beer for the nine o'clock and at midnight it's vodka, but you know. So. Um, we have to wrap it up. I'm really sorry. Um, I wish we had more time to talk, but thank you so much for coming and thank you so much for sharing the film. Thank you. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>